at ball. Well, I don't expect humility, but what about some good old dishonest honesty? Say that you can understudy all the other parts, that you can write a song that'll make us cry that touches all our hearts. And you can house and garden, bold and glamour, mademoiselle. Well, I know you can bitch and screw and house just as well. No, I don't expect humility, but what about some good old dishonest modesty? Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bort. And here we are, Bill, yet another week post-Easter. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's beautiful outside. I think uh, I would enjoy it more if, if the outside wasn't inside my sinuses right now. <laughs> I'll tell you, man, it is uh, tis the season. Did yeah. you see Melissa McCarthy's Sean Spice, Spicer uh Easter as, as the Easter Bunny. That was amazing. It was. Get out of here, okay? I'm sweating my Easter eggs off in here. <laughs> no, and I, I love it. and I like Steve Bannon as death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve, <laughs> you go back to hell. Jared, I love you. Say something. Oh, you just can't. You're too cute. <laughs> I know. I like the preppy with the uh, bulletproof vest. That was a nice touch. That's it's just what he was wearing. That's, yeah. that's the advantage of uh, what he's wearing. All right. Um, well, we have our uh, our award of the week. I don't know if we gave one last week. It was Holy Week. Maybe we refra- refrained ourselves. But I think last week, last time we gave one, we gave one to uh, Nisi, I guess, uh, the president of Egypt. For um, or for, we apologize. That's right. It's the apology of the week. We apologize to the Egyptian people for our president praising the uh, Egyptian dictator. Well, uh, this week our apology goes out to people who believe in democracy. And stand for uh, the rights of free speech in Turkey <laughs> because uh, there was a referendum. Now, it was a complicated thing, but there was a referendum in Turkey um, that basically dramatically increased the power of the executive. Uh, and so, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, I think that's Erdogan, Erdogan, I think it's Erdogan, Erdogan, um, is for all intents and purposes a Religious despot. I mean, he's increasingly uh, worn down the um, the freedom of expression, the opposition. He took the opportunity that happened with the coup to jail thousands of people who oppose him, to purge the military and the courts and even educational institutions of uh, people who do not support him. Uh, I think now, I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, Joe Scarborough one of the great intellects of our time, right? That's the morning Joe, as Mark Levin calls him. The morning Schmo. <laughs> He's an intellectual. He even uses three-syllable words. He'll even tell you. He's a, I like Scarborough, but yeah, I, I do, I do like Mark Levin, this, Mark Levin. He's just got the greatest. Oh, and this uh, story comes to us from MSLSD, yeah. the Washington Compost. Uh, and, yeah. and this Sunday on Meet the Depressed. <laughs> you know, great. That's, that's, Levin's great. He's yeah, great. it's funny if you're smart and not president. When you do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But at any rate, um, our president, uh, by the way, also, according to Morning Joe, um, 
under uh, this current Turkish president, more journalists have been jailed than under Putin, which is saying a lot. So our president called and congratulated him uh, on his victory against democracy in, in, in Turkey. So uh, this is actually very earnest. I think it's horrible. Uh, and I think the fact that our president has a particular affinity to uh, dictators and despots. Uh, I apologize to you, the people of Turkey. Congratulations, you on the, the popular vote. Understand, if it had not been for the three million uh, illegals, none of which are Turkish, I know, uh, I would have won the popular vote as well. Yeah, yes. Oh my goodness, you know. Uh, again, uh, President Merkel, thank you for being the leader of the free world. We still have Angela Merkel. I like that. Yeah, Germany has like the best economy, I think, right in the world. I don't want to like. I mean, it's interesting because they still have a manufacturing economy, which is amazing. I mean, they don't. They're probably not quite as innovative on certain things like social media apps. Like, like as far as the internet, like that's not like the, you know, the a lot of the big entrepreneurial stuff happens here. But it's just and, amazing and, and to me in, that and in Israel, oh yeah, in Israel, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's just amazing though that like they have such a, I mean that it's just a fascinating thing to consider that like they are a an industrial, you know, again, you know, one of the leading liberal capitalist. Uh, states that make stuff. And also, it is the current uh, object of Putin's attention behind the scenes. A lot of money going in to try to influence that election. A lot of stuff going on behind the scenes there. So uh, he had so much success with our country, he might as well move across Europe. I don't think he has a pee-pee tape with Angela Merkel. <laughs> I don't think he's going to have a... <laughs> yeah, I don't think this so. This is our American journalist, Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today, uh, inspired by a couple of different things, inspired by an editorial in the New York Times and also a uh, Krista Tippett interview, we want to talk about humility. Exactly. And we're going to tell you how humble we are right here. <laughs> in every way. In the bunker. Yeah, there's something in the New York Times that was interesting uh, about this. And yeah, I was telling you the other day, like, I heard Krista Tippett interview Richard Rohr and she her she read something he wrote while she was on kind of a personal retreat, right. kind of char- recharging the batteries, and it basically said he asked the Lord several years ago to give him one humiliation a day, and for him to like have the grace to take it in and respond appropriately to it. And he said, "Well, the Lord has not had a problem answering my prayer." There uh, is that is that your Richard Rohr voice? It's kind of the Lord has never had a problem answering my prayer. Uh, <laughs> But you know, like, uh, can I, but can I just say, I, I like Richard Rohr's stuff. But who in their right mind would ever ask for humiliations? I mean, they come, they come without having to ask them. Well, you know, what? he said, yeah, he, he, why well, he said that was he was prayed that first, like, it's probably like decades, a decade and a half when he, when his star kind of came on oh, the rise. Oh, right, right. No, I mean, and he's he's, a very he was popular. getting all kind of acc- accolades and adulation. And he just felt like it was not good for his soul. No, it felt, I, I, it felt like there was a change in him that, and so he, yeah, I mean, it, 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 uh, he, he uh, and again, God, they, uh, it's a prayer that's not hard to answer. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I once had a spiritual director t- uh, talk to me and said, you know, uh, humiliations will come your way. Um, uh, but the good news is that God, by God's grace, humiliations can always be turned into humility. Yeah, that's what Robin Williams said. Is his kind of one point? You mean Robert, Robert Williams? Oh, no, Robin you. Williams. Oh. Uh, years ago, when he had gone through kind of recovery stage later in life, and just said, you know, like 
I felt like I finally got the humiliation that lead, that led to humility. Right, uh, right. And yeah, I think that it, that often, it can go kind of either way. I mean, sometimes humiliation leads to kind of calcification. And right. This is why you never really win arguments, because if you out-argue somebody, usually if you do it craftily enough, they feel shamed right. and humiliated, and then they usually will dig in further on whatever idea right, right. you were going back and forth on. So Right, yeah. It's, uh, I listened to Dennis Quaid be interviewed the other day. I guess it was on Dan by Dan Lepeltard. And so they asked him about, okay, what about cocaine in the in the 80s? And he goes, well, you mean cocaine in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? You know, <laughs> he, goes, he goes, it was fun, and then it was fun with problems, and then it just was problems. Yeah. 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 yeah and so, yeah, humiliations can come in uh, – a lot of a lot of different ways. I, it's interesting. I'm looking forward to watching this. Uh, uh, I guess it's on HBO, The Prince of Lies, about uh, Murdoch, uh, Ma- Bernie Madoff. Uh, Madoff, Madoff. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to re- watching that. Uh, just because uh, I actually knew some organizations were that, that were deeply hurt by that. They lost. Oh yeah, United. Eastern University was big in that. Yeah. I mean, tons of. I mean. Yeah. A lot of people were. I mean, Kevin Bacon lost a lot. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, people lost, lost a lot. lot Good thing Kevin Bacon was still working. Yeah, it's good still working. Yeah, he he probably cashed in enough to. Probably. How many degrees are you separated from Kevin Bacon? I don't know. A many. Two. I think I'm two. Many, 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 many. Yeah, Kevin Bacon. I like, always like Kevin. Yeah, Bacon. I like him. He's a good actor. Yeah. So you know, it it's 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 funny because it is um, you know in the history of ideas and virtues. Humility was not a virtue that was found, you know, in in classic ideas of ethics. Um, it's a uniquely Christian uh, addition to virtues, um, and I, I think it's something that, you know, I've I've thought and I've actually said this before that you know humility is the gateway into the Christian faith. You have to say, I need a help, I need a savior. It is the means by which we make ourselves. Available to grace every day, uh, and it is ultimately, I think, the chief sign of spiritual maturity. Yet, it's something that certainly American Christianity doesn't cultivate. That was part of the point of the editorial. Yeah, this was in the New York Times, written by P, uh, by Peter Weiner, 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 Weiner. I think Weiner, Weiner, Weiner. Peter Weiner, who was a Republican speechwriter. He's, he's a he was a senior he was a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and served in three Republican administrations. And my guess is there won't be a fourth, at least right now. This this one. Yeah. One possibility I see nearby is Langhorn Station on PA in Middletown. That was Siri. Does that one sound good? Hi Siri. I'm I'm not sure what sorry, why she responded to us. I don't know. I don't know. She was, she wanted to jump into the conversation. Well there we have. That was that would be our guest uh, female co host today. Siri. Oh yeah, so I guess he's not going to be in the Trump administration. But yeah, he talked about. Um, <laughs> That's because yeah. uh, he was actually uh, having breakfast with a social psychologist. He knows. I wonder if this is Roger Haight, but who knows? Uh, he was an atheist, and he said to him, uh, "Who, although one who has much finds much to admire in religion, it's not right. so much like Jonathan Haight." But he said, um, "What could? What's one constructive contribution that Christians could make to public life?" And he sent one word answer: humility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've often talked about, um, I mean, you and I both, on one level or the other, have come out of the Reformed tradition. Um, do you still consider yourself within the Reformed tradition? Because I don't, but do you? 
I mean, I know. <laughs> you're so funny because you're. I know. I am. I am. I'm yeah, a, I mean, I'm like, a, well, okay. I'm broadly into. I better say I'm broadly into reform tradition. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's interesting because I would say that, like, there's even within the reform tradition, there's sort of. It's so. I was going to say you could say diverse or fractious, whatever you, right. you want to describe. But yeah, like, so yeah, I mean, broadly so. I mean, I would say I'm Catholic, small C, and evangelical in the 16th century sense of the word, you know, like the solas, the broad sort of Reformation tradition, trying to recover what's best at the heart of the fathers and the scriptures. And yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, I could, I, may, I might say I'm reformed after that in the sense of there's certain distinct, but, but probably a kind of segment of the tradition feels more like affinities to Luther or the Heidelberg Catechism and things like that. There's a kind of right. reformed tradition that is much more scholastic and for whom the high point or something is the Westminster Confession. Yeah, that, yeah, no. Or, so, or even the Belgic, and things like that would not. Uh, no, no, the Heidelberg is kind me. of, and Heidelberg is, is probably the most ecumenical of the Reformed catechisms. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a Mercersburg theology guy. I love Mercersburg. So there's all four of us left, but... Uh, <laughs> they have a conference still every no, they year. they have a conference. I should go to that conference. I, I used to belong to the Mercersburg Society. I think it costs like 50 bucks a year or something. Oh, huh, Wow. There's there some, yeah. I mean, some what do you get for your fifty bucks? I think you got a magazine. Oh, okay. Well, let me know when. It, well, let me know if there's a Groupon for it or something like that. There's, yeah, there's, <laughs> no, there's no Groupons. There's no, no nothing of that sort. <laughs> it needs to come down a little bit for me to join. But no, what I was about to say is one of the things to me that's always been ironic about the Reformed tradition, uh, the great tradition of of uh, you know Calvin and and following, is that. It believes and it emphasizes in the sovereignty of God's grace, which I believe as well. Matter of fact, I think all Christians should believe in grace alone. Um, however, there's this sense where it has always had a, it always has had an arrogant streak about him. I mean, it's really, I mean, there, there may be nothing more arrogant than a totally convinced Calvinist. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems to be so antithetical to their theological position. But I tell you, if you think you're the elect, it's hard not to. It's hard. It's hard for that not to go to your head. <laughs> There's somebody posted. Daniel Kirk, I think, posted. My name's Daniel. I'm a Calvinist. It's been eight years, three months, and th and three days since my last argument about predestination. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Good for him. Good for him. No, I mean, I'm deeply indebted. I mean, I think obviously Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the spirit of the Mercersburg theology, Carl Bart, of course, and, and so I, I, I deeply. I mean, in many ways, uh, that was my first. Uh, Christian conversion to be able to think theologically, but um, and again, certainly Calvinists do not have a monopoly on the lack of humility. Uh, you know, I think there's maybe you know Calvinism has a, has a great propensity to arrogance. When you marry American exceptionalism with Christianity, that that tends to be a pretty ugly beast of hubris as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know it's really interesting in the article. Uh, he talks about Steve Hayner, who's a great guy, who was a former president of Columbia Seminary and, and was worked and worked with InterVarsity. Um, I think he was an Old Testament scholar. He died of cancer. And towards the um, end of his life, he was quoted, he said to Peter Wehner um, that something to the, I think Peter Wehner asked him, did he believe in um, objective truth? And he said, yes. Oh, wait, sorry, I lost it. He said something like, to akin to, um, it's a short article, how can I not find it? Oh, I remember the quote. He said, do you believe in objective truth? 
And he said something like, yes, I do, but I hold on to it lightly. Yeah, he said, it's, it's something like, oh yeah, he said, I believe in objective truth, he told me, but I hold lightly to our ability to perceive truth. And then, he, and then his gloss on that is what Steve meant, I think, is that the world is unfathomably complex. To believe we have mastered in all respects that our angle of vision on matters like politics, philosophy, and theology is just right all the time is ridiculous. That doesn't mean that one ought to live in a state of perpetual doubt and uncertainty. If we did, we could never speak up for justice and moral truth. It, it does mean, however, that we're aware that we know what is at best incomplete. We see through a glass darkly, as how St. Paul put it in one of his letters to the Corinthians. We know only in part. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, that's part of one of the things we both have found so appealing, appealing about uh, Halleck is that a reminder of, of the unknowability of God or the incomprehensibility of God and that that should make us be much more humble, uh, both intellectually but also spiritually. The fact that, I mean, I think that's his whole idea of waiting on God, patience with God. And of course, waiting on God, that's a Simone Weil. But this idea of the immensity of the universe and the inherent problem of faith is something that could lead to despair or could lead to a kind of agnostic or atheism. But both, I think, for Simone Weil in one way and also for Thomas Hollick in another way, it is, a, it is to produce a kind of humility that allows us to be open to that encounter and that gift of God's grace. But I think uh, – I do think sometimes arrogance in the faith is, um, is based on a lack of patience. Uh, I think my – you know, I was, I was trying to think about my own – where does my own pride come from? And I think part of my pride uh, – was a def- well, maybe a defense mechanism, but it was also kind of a reality because I, you know, I was I lived most of my life without a champion. I mean, I didn't have anybody, I didn't have anybody paving any roads for me. I didn't have anybody opening any doors for me. So what I accomplished, you know, in a career and in an academic sphere, uh, was pretty much, you know, I had to have that internal motivation, and it was a great drive. It, it enabled me to try new things. It enabled me not to be intimidated, uh, but it also uh, probably consistently had me over um, overestimate my abilities to cope and to deal with things, which you know led to some pretty big problems for me at certain points in my life. Uh, and because of that, I mean, other because of my seeming ability to take on anything that came on my way. You know, other people were quite willing to go along on the ride as long as as long as I was winning. <laughs> so I think I find for me um, there was a kind of my arrogance um, and pride issue with pride kept me from admit, admitting limitations. And you know, instead of sometimes seeing an obstacle, saying, "Okay, this is an obstacle. You might not be able to change this," or "This is the way this person is. That's the way they're always going to be." I think sometimes my uh, belief in my ability to be a change agent and to overcome uh, kept me away from being present to the realities in front of me. And I think it was kind of a, it was very much a kind of pride that if I had been more humble, I think I would have allowed space for uh, the inadequacies of not only the people around me, but I think I would have been more open to the fact that, Bill, this is something you can't handle. And that was a hard thing for me ever to admit. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think like I was re I was reading I was rereading reviews of a book I picked up years ago. Um 
by Robert Kaplan called why the subtitle is like why leadership demands a pagan ethos. And I think that what's the main title. It's uh, the, the main title is warrior politics. Why leadership demands a pagan ethos. And you know, it's interesting because his criticism of America's approach to the world, was just, he looks at in the West in general, a sort of Judeo-Christian slash Kantian, very duty and principle driven is that it can be too idealistic and, and, it, and he looks at pagans like Sun Tzu and other people and he does, and he thinks Churchill is a great example because he knew history, but, but you know, he, he, he sort of like commends a kind of humility, but it's a humility um, as a means, not an end right. in itself. It's sort of like, Hey, there are certain times when you just can't, win in world politics or you can't normalize uh, uh, you know other cultures to your and so it's a sort of humility as a tool which i think never works like right. because it, it always leads into some sort of manipulative kind of right it's it's it be, it, humility is a is a um in some levels it's an existential state it's not a golf club that you can pull out and use oh i need to be home but you know it's it's funny i mean it's you know, this is this is the TED Talk phenomenon. People are getting up there acting hum- humble and, va- and vulnerable while they're celebrating their humility and vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. that actually you you have uh, you've already received your reward. Uh, I, I do. Um, you yeah, know, but sometimes I think that's not inauthentic. Like Brene Brown, I don't think it's inauthentic. Not, not all the time, but it, but it's it, you know it's kind of like the first couple people do it, but it becomes a template. I'm sorry. It yeah. becomes a template. There are some people. You're who, more cynical about that. I, I, oh you think anything's gosh. a template. You think anything's a template, though. I, I mean, I think sometimes oh, it's not genuine. I, I mean, all right. I, I, well, Bill, I, I'll humbly assume I don't know who's a template. Who's uh, not. I know that you do, though. You know it's a template. Uh, no, that's Epistemically, not right. you've got you, no, you see more no, than I do. No, I'm not saying. I that. take it one TED talk at a time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, I'll have to. I'll be. I'll have to humbly resign myself. Well, you know, you you are much more generous to people than I am in that way. I think uh, I see shadows often where you see light, but that's okay. That's why we are such a successful. It's only light that can. There's no shadow unless light's there. It's only Uh, light that casts shadows. Well, then I submit to your understanding there. That's just physics. Which I didn't take. In high By the school. way, and uh, he'll be interviewing Joel Olstein next week. <laughs> Dude, that guy, I told, I think I said this on a podcast once. Years ago, I watched this special where they were like 2020, like in bed with him. Like, you know, like embedded reporter. 2020. Yeah, in bed, literally. <laughs> in bed. Like this. So this, I mean, this, this guy was like playing basketball and working out with Joel Olstein. Man, Joel Olstein was like doing multiple reps with like 245 pounds uh, weights on each side of the, of the bench press bar. Man. I didn't think a guy like that, that lanky, was that strong. I was pretty impressed with what he could bench press. By the way, if I had a choice as a journalist to be embedded with Joel Olstein or be embedded in a firefight in Afghanistan, that would be a no-brainer choice for me. Give me Afghanistan anytime. I used the bathroom in Joel Olstein's church two years ago at a trip to Houston. I was like at this coffee shop right across the street. I was waiting for my brother to pick me up, and I went over. I, I, I said to the security guard, do you see him, Joel Olstein around here a lot? We see him every Sunday. <laughs> I bet you they had triumphal bathrooms. It was nice. It yeah, was nice I'm for sure. a church. And the bookstore was very, um, it, was, it was audacious. It was very... I'm sure there are many books in there I would like to have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I was surprised, actually, at some of the books they did have. I mean, like, it, was, it, was, it, it was more diverse than I thought it would Bible? be. Were there, any there, there, was, there were several translations. Several translations. There were there was a good. Yeah, you know, I think something that, um, particularly coming out of last week, uh, 
the basis of, I think, of all of our understanding of humility actually is like, should be like all of our, all, any idea we have about the faith is, is through the, through God. I mean, I think that God is the prime example of humility. Um, and I don't think the cross or the incarnation is an innovation in terms of the humility of God. I think the very act of creation, the great, uh, Jewish mystic, uh, Isaac, uh, Luria, um, the lion, uh, whose theology was shaped by 1492, the great expulsion of Jews from, from Spain. And, um, up until that time, the destruction of the temple. And this was kind of one that considered one of the second great crises, obviously, this is before the Holocaust. But he came up with this idea that even creation is a kind of a humbling of God, where that if God is all there is prior to the existence of anything else, then for there to be room uh, for something else to exist, God has to literally pull God's self back. And I think um, that is an idea that's not dissimilar from what, you know, chapter two of the book of Philippians tells us, and so the kenosis of Christ, the self-emptying. So I think the very fact that the idea of creation should be seen as the humility of God, and if you stop and think about all of holy history, in some levels is God showing great humility to engage with humanity. Now, it's the humility born out of love. I mean, you know, I was with uh, two of my grandsons last night, and, you know, the things you do with kids, the things you'll do with babies, you know, you, you, know, you get down, you play, I was playing hide-go-seek, I was playing, my favorite game with, with babies is the nose game, you go nose and things like that. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's like um, risk or the rise and decline of the third Reich, like, all right, kids, let me show you how you really work. No, like, I went to their toddlers to teach them the, the birth of nation stuff. But like anyway, but, uh, you know, you just lose because you just want to reach them at any level they can. I mean, uh it, it, there's nothing better than kissing a baby in the neck to make them giggle. I mean, you do this kind of stuff and you love it. And it, it's it's a humility out of love. It's a, it's a meeting them at their level out, out of love. And it, and it's not hard at all. It's not hard at all to get down on the floor and crawl around with somebody you love. And I think that's, I think that's at the heart of, of Revelation. We talked about central themes the other day in a podcast that may or may never be heard, but uh, <laughs> with the podcast, which I, but shall I not do be think named. one of the universal themes is the constant humility of God in order to make room for us and to show God's love for us. Yeah, and I think that you know that I, I'm, I'm struck by the beginning of that op-ed piece about how this atheist social psychologist said humility as the thing Christians could give because it, there's interest. It's interesting because. When we think of humility, and you know, I think of th- things like Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, which chronicles these two Jewish psychologists, that shows how shows us how consistently ignorant we are, making all these bad choices. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think like in acknowledging a certain kind of humility can be seen as a loss, right? Like, is, is it, right, it, it, right. But actually, if it is Christological, it and it, it goes back to the heart of God, then actually the experience of humility is a gain. It, it, it actually is. <laughs> is uh, sort of admitting a certain kind of limitation. But in the admission, gaining, this is, is you're losing, you know, losing your life and in the process saving. Yeah, I do. I think it is a gain. I do think there is a part of humility that always will have a broken heart as well. I'm, yeah, was it Patrick Moynihan said after Kennedy was shot, there's something about being Irish that always breaks your heart. Well, I think it is a gain, but it's a gain at the cost of opening up your heart. And, um, you know, we have to be, be, you know, for God to be humble meant 
that God had to allow there to be a world with, with incredible pain, incredible suffering and mistakes that we all make. And for God to empty God's self in Christ meant that now scars and death are at the very heart of the Holy Trinity. So I think you're right. It's a gain. But, I, you know, we get back to Brother Roar. I mean, um, you know, we laugh about him praying for um, humiliations every day. But, uh, you know, if I just stop and think of I, what are the first 10 humiliations that have happened to me in recent years? Uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody in a given day. So we we can kind of joke about it. It's funny. But there were probably things that, uh, not probably, there were things that were pretty awful that must have happened to him for him to walk in that. And and I think that's something that's always important to remember. Yeah, Bart says that God is no higher than in his humility. And if you can accept that, that you've got a real problem with your theology. Yeah, I agree. Now you know me You know how proud I am And what I'm gonna tell you now Won't be easy to say Before Well, I-